Well, the brothers and sisters of those who have battled addiction, perhaps with, with drugs or with alcohol, often report that they feel a deep resentment towards their sibling who had given themselves over to substance abuse. Now, that, that resentment might be fueled by the fact that they felt overlooked by their parents as their parents devoted the majority of their attention to dealing with and trying to help their, their brother or sister who was hooked on drugs. That resentment might increase when parents or, or other family members celebrate their brother or sister's successful completion of rehab or the fact that they have kept themselves clean from drugs or alcohol for a certain period of time. Oh, these, these siblings of those who have been uh, dealing with substance abuse can feel as if their parents and others have even overlooked their own accomplishments and failed to celebrate their own achievements. And perhaps they, they may feel that they are more deserving of their parents' praise and yet don't feel as if they've received it. I mean, after all, in, in comparison, they've done everything right, while their troubled sibling has seemed to do everything wrong. This dynamic of resentment is also at work in the verses that we're going to study this morning. You can turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at the entirety of the chapter. Uh, You can also find it printed in the back of your bulletin. And as we will see, our verses open this morning with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, those who are seen to be the most righteous among the people. They're questioning why Jesus would spend so much time among sinners. Why would he associate with those kind of people and not us? They seem to resent the grace that Jesus showed towards even the worst of sinners. But Jesus powerfully rebukes their attitude in a series of three parables that culminate with the famous parable of the prodigal son. Friends, what the Pharisees missed and what they are rebuked for is for misunderstanding the grace of God. They fail to see that heaven rejoices in the fact that God extends his grace to even the very worst of sinners who turn in repentance. Oh, they fail to see this because they fail to see their own need for this very same grace. Friends, God stood ready to lavish his grace on them as well. But first, they had to see their need for it. Rather than being resentful at the grace that Jesus showed to sinners, they should have rejoiced and just how abundant God's grace truly is. So the main idea of this chapter this morning, and therefore this sermon, is rejoice in God's abundant grace. Simple, just rejoice in God's abundant grace. So I have two points in today's sermon to help us consider that idea. The first comes from verses 1 through 10. It is heaven's joy. Heaven's joy. And the second, our joy. That will be verses 11 through 32 in the parable of the prodigal son. So first, heaven's joy. Look with me starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it. When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need repentance. 
Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Well, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 really set the context for all of Jesus' teaching in this chapter. As we've seen uh, throughout Luke's gospel, those who are poor and needy, sick and, and desperate, well, they've been flocking to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has consistently responded to them in love and compassion and grace. He has eaten with them. He's ministered to them. He has healed them. And in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24, which we looked at a few weeks ago, and perhaps we see the culmination of this. Jesus told the parable of a large banquet, and in telling that, he made it clear that those who are poor, maimed, blind, and lame were welcome into his kingdom. There is an open door to enter the kingdom of God for all who repent and believe. Well, as we see in our verses for this morning, the Pharisees complained that Jesus had such a welcoming attitude towards sinners and tax collectors. The tax collectors were really those who were just seen as the worst of sinners in that time. They had partnered with the Roman government. They often stole from the people of Israel. So to say sinners and tax collectors is basically to say sinners and even worse sinners. The, the Pharisees thought, well, how could Jesus say that he was sent from God if he would associate with such people? If there was any truth to the claims of him being Messiah, he would separate himself, not welcome these type of people. He would spend more time with people like us, the clean, the righteous, the holy, the good, the respectable. In response to this attitude, Jesus told a series of three parables to the Pharisees. The first two of those parables, the ones we just read, give us something of heaven's perspective or God's perspective on the matter. Well, the last parable, the parable of the prodigal son that we will look at in a little bit, well, it reveals what our own attitude or our own perspective on the matter should be. These first two parables basically teach the exact same thing. Jesus taught it twice to make sure his point was not missed, actually kind of taught it three times with the parable of the prodigal son. Well, Jesus taught that heaven, God's dwelling place, God himself, his angels, Rejoice when lost sinners are saved. And rejoice when lost sinners are found. And brothers and sisters, just think about how amazing that is for a moment. But if you were a Christian, heaven rejoiced when that happened. Heaven continues to rejoice at the grace that God has shown you. And that is amazing. In both these parables, someone loses something valuable. A man loses a sheep. Uh, a woman loses a silver coin. And when these individuals realize that something valuable has been lost, well, what is it that they do? Well, they do not rest until they have found and, and recovered what has been lost. And friends, how many of you tear up your house to look for a lost set of keys? Teenagers, how many of you do not rest until you find your phone that you have misplaced? 
But the United States has an entire government department that is devoted to finding and recovering those who have been listed as prisoners of war or missing in action from previous wars. They keep investigating and seeking to find and return those who are missing, even from wars that happened like 30 or 40 or, or 50 years ago, even if the only thing that can ever be returned are the remains of those who may have been killed. Their mission is not to rest until all those who are lost and missing have been found. Well, friends, that is the attitude of Jesus towards lost sinners. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and in these parables, well, they simply represent lost sinners. And friends, what is it that God has done for lost sinners? Luke 19.10, which we will look at in a few weeks. For the Son of Man is coming to, to seek and to save the lost. John 3.16 For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. 1 Timothy 1.15 This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Friends, we could keep going. We could pile up verse after verse after verse that say the same thing. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I mean, what grace. Friends, Jesus did indeed come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was sent so that we who were lost might be found. And brothers and sisters, praise be to God that Jesus did not just sit back and hope we would find our way to him. No, he sought after us. He gave his very life for us. Now, rescuers, those who, who go out to, to seek to rescue people who may be in some kind of distress, sometimes they might light a, something like a lighthouse or a, illuminate a rescue beacon so that those who see it might make their way to the light to safety by their own efforts. If they're lost, they might see the light and they might wander their way through the woods and, and make it back. Well, friends, though Jesus is undoubtedly the light of the world, the picture that the Bible paints of Jesus and our salvation is not simply that of a lighthouse or a, or a rescue beacon. No, Jesus is something like the mountain rescue team that goes and searches for lost hikers who has a helicopter and lowers the rescue, rescue basket and plucks people from the mountain. He's like the lifeguard or the Coast Guard rescue team that goes out into the water and drags out the drowning swimmer. My friends, Jesus' rescue efforts are not passive, but active. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. This is what the Bible describes us like. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who seeks God. Friends, our sin and our depravity is so great that we will never seek for God on our own. We will never find Him. Our eyes are, are blinded to the light. We would not have come on our own. We needed someone to come and pluck us off the mountaintop. 
We needed someone to drag us out of the water. Friends, we needed Jesus Christ. Is not this the picture of God's rescue that Juliet just read for us in Ezekiel chapter 34? Remember verses 11 and 12. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. A Christian, your salvation is a work of God's grace from beginning to end. And church, this is good news. It is a source of, of great assurance because your salvation is not ultimately in your own hands. Your salvation is not held in your own power and your own strength. As it is in the hands of Jesus. All those who Jesus seeks, he finds. And not one will be lost. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 28. This is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, friends, if you are in Jesus Christ, your salvation is assured. Jesus never loses any that he has found. Jesus never loses any that he has rescued. And friends, in these parables, notice the joy that is present when lost sinners are saved. Just as a, a shepherd rejoices when he finds his lost sheep, and that woman rejoices when she finds her coin, so heaven rejoices, celebrates, when a lost sinner is saved. Ezekiel chapter 33, 11 says this, As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Friends, the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he does delight when sinners turn to him in repentance. Why then does God not choose to save all people? I do not know the answer to that. Only that it will bring him more ultimate glory to only save a few. And who are we to question God? He has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Therefore, if you are a Christian, you should rejoice in the fact that God has chosen to show mercy to you. Marvel at the fact that when God saved you, all of heaven rejoiced. And church again, is that not amazing? When you, by God's grace, turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus, all of heaven rejoice. And this joy is simply evidence of God's great love for you. 1 John 4.10 Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Look again at verse 7 of our text. 
Jesus said there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need repentance. My friends, Jesus' point was not that there were 99 righteous people. His point was not that there's like 99 people over here who are really good and who do not need salvation and only a few who need repentance and salvation. And that's who he's come for. No, all we like sheep have gone astray. We are all sinners. We are all in need of the grace of God. Now, friends, in saying that, Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees who thought that they were so good and righteous that they had no need for the grace of God. They thought they had no need for repentance. They were good enough on their own. They were self-righteous. They thought that they were morally superior to the sinners and tax collectors. They believed that God was pleased with them because of all of their outward rule following. But Jesus says that heaven rejoices when sinners humble themselves, confess their sin, and admit their need for Jesus. Heaven does not rejoice over the 99 people who think that they are good enough on their own. Heaven does not rejoice in the 99 people who think that they need no repentance because they're pretty good. Heaven rejoices when sinners humble themselves and admit their need for Jesus. Luke chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Again, this is Jesus speaking. It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, the truth is that we are all sick. We're all lost in our sin. But the Pharisees did not see themselves as sin. They did not see themselves as sinners. They did not think they were in need of God's grace, so they simply ignored his love and compassion. Again, they were self-righteous and did not understand God's grace. Friends, God does not delight in self-righteousness. He does not delight when you pretend that everything in your life is fine. God does not delight in you thinking that you have no sin and pretending that you have no sin. No, he delights in humble repentance. So church, what should we take away from these parables? How can we adopt something of heaven's perspective? Friends, first, we should seek to be a people who welcome sinners. The Bible calls Christians to be in the world, but not of the world, meaning that we should not shy away from those who do not know the Lord. We should not adopt their practices or or lifestyles, but we should engage with the non-believers in our life. Get to know them. Build friendships. Spend time with them. Genuinely love them. Kids and, and teenagers, build friendships with people from other faiths at your school. Like Jesus, we should genuinely love these people and welcome them and seek their good. We should warmly welcome them when they come and attend church. And friends, if you are here and and not a Christian, I want you to know that we are genuinely glad that you are here. And we'd love to have you back anytime you want to come. In church, we should not look down on those who are not Christians in self-righteous judgment, expecting them to uphold Christian standards of morality. We are not to adopt their sinful practices, but neither should we act as if we are superior. After all, we did not find God. God found us. We did not find God. It was not our moral superiority. God 
found us. Uh, Second, at the same time, we should seek after sinners and call them to repentance. That we are not to stand in judgment over non-Christians. We should clearly let them know that there is a God who will one day judge them unless they turn in repentance and follow him. But Jesus is the one who saves. We cannot change anyone's heart. But Jesus has called us in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. To call lost sinners to repentance. We are to be clear with the, the demands of the gospel. Friends, Jesus did not just associate with sinners for the thrill of it or because he approved of their lifestyle or because they were just like more fun than everyone else. Jesus did not adopt their practices. No, he genuinely loved them. But out of that genuine love, he called lost sinners to repentance. Therefore, friends, we should be a a church that is welcoming to non-Christians. We should also make the need for repentance clear. We should make it clear that those who are not Christians cannot truly belong to the church. They cannot be members of the church unless they repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus. Friends, you can only belong to the church. You can only belong to God's people if you first belong to Christ. And church, we're also to call to, we're called to seek after our fellow Christians who chase after sin. This is what James writes in James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The process of church discipline that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18 calls us to go to our brother or sister and confront them when they sin. If they don't repent, to take a couple more people. And if that does not lead them to repentance, to take the matter to the church. There's a whole process of church discipline, even excommunication, if it comes to that. It's an act of love designed to, to turn a sinner from the error of his way that his soul may be saved from death. We're called to to seek after those who sin and rejoice when they turn in repentance. My friends, we are to to share in heaven's joy. And that takes us to the second point of our sermon, our joy. Our joy. Look with me starting at verse 11. He, Jesus, also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers." So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father Solomon was filled with compassion. 
He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field as he came... As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he, he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and did not want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, I think this parable is probably familiar to most of you. Even people who have never before set foot in a church have heard the parable of the prodigal son. But nevertheless, I want to take a few minutes to simply walk through this parable and make sure that we understand Jesus' point. The, the parable opens by telling of a father who has two sons. The younger of those sons demands that the father give him his portion of his inheritance. And now, I mean, I think even in our day, we understand what a uh, bold request that is. It was more than bold. It was a, an extraordinarily rebellious and disrespectful request, a shameful request. His son is essentially saying that he wishes his father were dead, as that is normally when he would receive his inheritance. It's certainly true that he wanted nothing more to do with his father, because as soon as he receives his inheritance, he takes off for a distant country. He leaves home. As soon as he gets to that foreign country, he, he wastes all of his money and foolish living, which Wheeler down in, in verse 30 is really shameful, immoral, sinful living. He spent his money on prostitutes, among other things. Well, this sin and his sin and wickedness led to his misery, which it always does. Friends, sin will always result in ruin, either in this life or the life to come, and that is exactly what happened. The younger son cut himself off from his father's love, and he brought himself to ruin. When this young man sunk so low that he was willing to work among the pigs, and he was so poor and desperate for food, he was willing and desired to eat what the pigs ate. My friends, remember, for an Israelite, pigs were unclean animals. It was really not possible for this, this man to experience a greater shame. It's hard to imagine that he could sink any lower than he had sunk. But in God's grace, his misery brought him to the end of himself and inflamed, awakened his desire for his father's love and compassion. Friends, we're again reminded that even suffering and trials are often God's kindness to us. They're one of God's means to draw us to himself. Friends, God seeks us in our suffering. He allows us to experience darkness. 
so that we may see his light. Well, this is what happened to this young son. He longed to once again experience his father's care and compassion and love. And so he decided to return. Confident. Confident that life, even as one of his father's servants, would be better than the life that he was currently living. But this son would not be returning in the same attitude of prideful rebellion in which he left. Look at verses 18 and 19. He would make no demands of his father this time. He knew that he was not even worthy to be called his father's son. Instead, he would come in humility, admitting he was wrong, and simply pleading for his father to show him mercy and grace. My friends, that is a picture of the repentance that Jesus called for in verses 7 and 10 that we just read. In this picture, we, or in this parable, we get a picture of repentance. But we also get a picture of the abundant love and compassion of God. My friends, God is, is eager to welcome sinners who return to him in repentance. And notice that the, the father saw his son coming from a long way off, and he ran out to meet him. Before his son even had a chance to speak, he drew him close and kissed him and showed him affection. He interrupted his son about halfway through his confession and told his servant to dress him in the best robe and get ready for a party to celebrate his son's return. And he welcomed him back, not just as a servant, which is what that son desired, but he welcomed him back again as a son. Friends, the, the joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents is just so abundantly clear in this parable. The father's first inclination is to celebrate. Why? Because the son who was lost was found. He was dead, but is alive again. Friends, what a, what a beautiful picture of salvation and heaven's joy in salvation. And friends, I hope you see the abundant love and compassion of your God just overflowing from these verses. It is amazing that we, that we who have rebelled against our Heavenly Father, who have treated Him just as shamefully as the younger son treated his father, should be adopted into God's family. In 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. But praise be to God. But friends, if you are here and not a Christian, if you've never confessed your unworthiness to God and turned from your sin, let me invite you to do that this morning. Let me invite you to, to come experience God's abundant grace. Let me invite you to come and experience it. Some, like the Pharisees, refuse to come because they don't see their need for God's grace. But others, others are reluctant to come to God. They're afraid of coming to God because they do not truly believe that God could ever forgive them of their sin. They believe their, their sin is too great to be forgiven. They're too ashamed of their, their past or perhaps even their present. They believe they're beyond the grace of God. Friends, if that is you this morning, let these verses be a comfort and an encouragement to you. No one is beyond the grace of God. Jesus' blood covers every sin. 
God is ready to embrace all who turn to him in humble repentance. How easy it would have been for the prodigal son to convince himself that his father would never welcome him back. How easy it would have been for his shame to keep him away. But he humbled himself, and he was met with mercy. And so it is for all who turn to God in repentance and faith. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked one abandon his way, and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will freely forgive. And brothers and sisters, church, let these verses be an encouragement to you. You may have people in your life who you think are beyond the hope of the gospel, beyond God's hope of grace. But friends, God is ready and eager to welcome lost sinners home. God is the one who saves. Pray that God's work of grace would be at work in that person's heart. Well, friends, you probably noticed the reunion between father and son is not the end of the parable. After the, the father welcomes his wayward son back, the attention shifts to his older brother. And notice how much attention is placed on that older son. The text stays with him all the way from verse 25 through verse 32. The conversation between him and his father is the conclusion of the parable. All of this is communicating that although this is known as the parable of the prodigal son, the most important message, not the only message, but the main point that Jesus is trying to get across is to be found in the interaction with the older son. Well, it's immediately obvious that the older son did not share the father's joy at the return of his brother. In fact, just like the siblings of drug addicts sometimes resent the attention their wayward brother or sister receives, well, this older brother was resentful of the attention that his father was lavishing on his wayward younger brother. He may have also been resentful that the father slaughtered a calf, a calf that should have been part of his inheritance to celebrate this younger brother. Well, the older brother's resentment is fueled by his self-righteousness. The same self-righteousness as that of the Pharisees. That's Jesus' point. The attitude of the older brother seems to be, Father, I've done so much for you. I've honored you. I've earned your reward. Well, how could you honor your wayward son like this and not me? He thought of himself as worthy of his father's blessings. And he thought of his younger brother as unworthy of his father's love and compassion. Oh, the irony is that the younger son also saw himself as unworthy, which is exactly what led to his restoration as a son. But what the older brother missed in his self-righteousness was all the grace and blessings that his father had given him. He ignored his father's love. He doubted his father's goodness and justice. And as we see in verse 31, he overlooked the fact that everything the father had was his, all that the father had not given to his younger brother was his. He ignored that he was a debtor to his father's grace as well. As one commentator put it, the older son is convinced that he is worthy and that the father has been unfair. He again represents the Pharisees and scribes who are convinced of their righteousness, who believe God will be impressed with all that they have done for him. 
In other words, they do not feel they need to repent. The self-righteousness of the older son flames into view in verse 30. He refuses to call the younger son his brother, but identifies him as this son of yours. He will not even acknowledge that the younger son is his brother, but cuts off all ties with him. My friends, Jesus here was rebuking the Pharisees who were self-righteous and judgmental and had no interest in sharing God's kingdom with those to whom they felt superior. They did not rejoice in, in God's grace to others because they did not see their own need for it. Now the parable ends in verse 32 with the father once again in encouraging the older brother to come share in his joy. He extends again something of an invitation to the older brother to celebrate the salvation of his younger brother. We do not know what the older brother chose to do. And the parable ends with it being something of an open question. Perhaps Jesus left it as an open question, as an invitation to the Pharisees to humble themselves and enter his kingdom. And friends, perhaps as an invitation for you to do the same. And we know how the Pharisees responded. Instead of rejoicing that the grace of God had appeared in Jesus Christ, they would go on to put Jesus to death on the cross. Well, friends, how will you respond to the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ? My friends, let me ask you this morning, who do you most identify with in these parables? Do you see yourself as the one who was lost? Or one of the 99 who had no need for repentance? The one who needed rescue? Or one of the 99 who thought that they could save themselves through their own efforts? Do you see more of yourself in the younger son or the older brother? Do you see yourself as worthy or unworthy of God's love? Well, friends, take a moment to think of the person who has mistreated you more than any other person in your life. Maybe the person who has hurt you more than any other person. Perhaps the person that you would consider your greatest enemy. Could you rejoice in their salvation? Would you rejoice in their salvation? Do you see yourself as more worthy of God's love than they are? More deserving of God's love than they are? Could you welcome them with open arms as a brother and sister in Christ without holding their past sin against them? Do you treat them more like the Father? Or the older brother. Christian, if heaven rejoices in God's abundant grace to sinners, if heaven, to include our holy God, rejoices in the lost being found, if heaven rejoices in repentance, then so should you. God invites you to share in heaven's joy, and there is no greater joy than that. But friends, the, the truth is that you will never rejoice in God's grace to others until you rejoice over his grace to you. And you will never rejoice in God's grace to you until you see that you needed that same grace as the younger son received. You will never share in heaven's joy until you understand that you were hopelessly lost, that you had rebelled against your heavenly father, treated him shamefully, 
were unworthy to even be called his servant. But that Jesus came to seek and save you by dying on the cross. Now friends, if you want to share in heaven's joys, you must delight in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, church, whether or not we delight in the gospel is shown in our attitude towards our own sin. And we must see the horror of our own sin. It's also shown in our attitude towards the sin of others. Friends, we've already thought about this morning, the Bible calls Christians to confess their sins to one another. To bring sin into the light. To come alongside one another so we can bear one another's burdens. Friends, we encourage this to happen when we confess our own sin. But we also encourage this to happen when we meet those who do confess their sin with grace rather than judgment. Friends, we want to be a people, a a church among whom it is safe for people, Christians and non-Christians alike, to confess their sins by meeting them with grace and not judgment. We encourage people to hide their sin rather than confess when we treat serious sins as if they are unforgivable, as if they can never be forgiven. We act like the older brother when we permanently shame someone who at one time committed some sin that we we consider particularly serious, or maybe that our culture particularly looks down on. When we constantly blame them for bringing shame to the family, We act like the older brother when we put on a false front of self-righteousness, pretending that we never sin ourselves or could never do something like that. We act like the older brother when we harbor bitterness or resentment against those who have sinned against us. When either in our heart or publicly, we hold someone's sin against them. Friends, churches that do that, families that do that, simply encourage each other to hide sin rather to confess it. And I do not think the younger brother would have come home if he thought the father would react like the older brother did. Church, there is no joy in heaven over hidden sin. There is no joy in heaven over hidden sin. And so, church, we should be grateful that this is not how Jesus treated us. Instead, his grace extends to the very worst of sinners who turn in repentance. Even if we run after sin for a time, we can be confident of God's forgiveness if we confess and repent. And church, people should be confident that they will receive that same treatment from us. If we fail to to meet them with grace when they repent, we falsely teach them that Jesus will not meet them with grace either. So friends, again, if you are here and, and not a Christian, let me encourage you to turn from your sin into God's grace today. And throw yourself at the foot of the cross. Know that we Christians, we're not those who have everything together. We're not those who are without sin. We are those who are lost and have been found. We are those who have received the grace of God and want you to experience the same grace that we have. We want to rejoice like heaven does over every lost sinner that comes home. Church, let me invite you to share in heaven's joy as well. That starts by rejoicing in God's grace that was shown to you. Friends, let that grace that was shown to you lead you to love those that God loves. Let that grace lead you to rejoice when lost sinners are found. Let that grace lead you to rejoice when our brother or sister turns from their sin. 
Let that grace lead you to confess your own sins freely to God and to others. Friends, let that grace lead you to the foot of the cross as well. Let's pray.